listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Paul. Hi, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing great. Good to talk to you. How are you doing? I can't complain. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright, editor and publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter, host of the Non-Zero Podcast, on which you are at this moment. You're Paul Bloom, famous psychologist who hasn't changed his fake backdrop since the last time I recorded a podcast with him. But it's as impressive as ever. It's almost as if you've read all those fake books, Paul. The last time I remember you fell for it, you just made comments on how beautiful my study was. And then I just clicked it off. What's a nice touch in that fake backdrop is the way some of the books are stacked, like like as if you haven't quite gotten around to shelving them, because that's the way real life is. You got a few stacked books. So if we're talking about books, I have to observe your bookshelf has been cleaned (laughs) and you have many, you have many, seemingly many duplicates of the same book over and over again. Well, you know, it's funny you should ask about that, Paul. You know, uh, yeah, you know what those are? Those are some of my own books, including a small sampling of the uh, foreign editions <clears throat> of uh, my book. Uh, but but I, I, look, enough about me. Um, let's talk about you and your books. The uh, We've talked about some of your books in the past. You're the author of many books. You're this famous psychologist. And now you got, uh, you're supposed to demure when I say famous psychologist. I don't know what this, I don't know what this supposed is. Supposed to go, oh, shucks. No, I, I yield center stage to many Jeff others. Skinner many, many others. Yeah. Many about others. whom we'll talk because he's mentioned in your new book, yeah. Psych. And, and this book, this is like a genre buster, man. First of all, I don't think it would be very effective marketing if I held up the PDF I have. Do you want to hold up the actual book? Do you have an actual book jacket or? Um, oh my I, God! I, I this do. is like so lame. One second. Okay, okay, one second. <laughs> Wait, we have to take a break. You don't have a copy of your book ready to show. I'm reporting you to your publicist. Okay. Oh man, hey, this major, is this is this is major great podcast, major though. promotional lapse on Paul there Bloom's there part. Okay. There, there it is. is. There it Psych. Is. Uh, yeah, what's what, what's <laughs> the what's the subtitle there? Um, the story of the human mind. Story of the human mind. We all have one of those. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that's interesting about this is it covers roughly the territory that a psychology textbook would cover, an introductory psychology textbook. And in fact, it's based on an intro psych course you taught at Yale. And yet, it reads, how should I put it, better than a textbook. It's more pleasant to read than the textbooks I recall having in college. So is this like... Is this a whole new genre you've invented, Paul? So first, thank you. Um, I wanted to cover all of psychology. I teach a course. I taught a course on it. Teach a course on it. Have an online course on it. Um, and I decided to write to write a book. But you couldn't pay me, like literally, to write a textbook. I, I have friends of mine who wrote textbooks, and there is not enough money in the world to produce mm-hmm. a million words that cover the same material and cover the same stuff. I wouldn't want to read a textbook either. So what I try to do is I put. Um, I put down uh, in what I hope is sort of interesting, fun, anecdotal prose, what would otherwise be in a textbook. So it's the story of psychology written by somebody who, you know, wants to read something. I think that's not so so awful mm-hmm. to uh, to read. Um, not so awful. I, is that on the on the book? Is that a blurb? Did someone say that, that about one, it? That was one of my, you know, surprisingly readable. Mm-hmm. Not, not not so awful. Not so awful. I've yeah, seen so worse. Awful. Yeah, you know. If you lower expectations, um, 
you know, the sort of books I have in mind, Bill Bryson writes these wonderful, sprawling books about often mm-hmm. about a field. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had him in mind a little bit when when writing this. Mm-hmm. But but no, it's surprising. Like I would have thought as I sort of had the idea, oh, it must be a hundred books like this. And there isn't. There are books that are very good books, um, like Stephen Pinker's How to Mind Works, which present a certain view on psychology, a certain perspective. And I've done that in my other books, but none that sort of tell, just tell the story. Everything from Freud, Skinner, schizophrenia, memory, how to give, you know, the good life, uh, uh, language, developed the whole thing mm-hmm. in, in presumably a readable pattern. And you succeeded. So You've succeeded. Well, thank you. Thank Very you. There's pleasant. another blurb. Succeeds at what he aspired to do. Succeed. Yes, you can go ahead. Use it. Uh I actually listened to it, didn't read it, but very, uh, very, very pleasant listen. Um, and, you know, before we get started on the contents, I'm wondering uh, how this must have made you think about the difference between presenting something in to an audience that's sitting there. Yeah. And uh, where you have, I guess, visual aids, for one thing, yeah. uh, that you can resort to in a book, but not so prolifically. Um, and and the challenge of writing. Like, yeah. like it would be wonderful if you could just turn the lectures into, into text and you were done. But I've got a feeling it wasn't that easy, right? I thought it was going to be that easy. This was a COVID project. Um, and what I thought I was going to do was, because my lectures were online, there were transcripts of it. So a clever idea. I would take the transcripts, edit them, mm-hmm. put sure. it together in a book, take me a few months. The money will roll in. It could renovate my house. It'll be fantastic. And so the first one I did was Freud. So I took the, the the transcripts and it was so, what is good on a stage in a lecture with slides and pictures seems very, you know, wispy and and, and limited and, and, you know, superficial on a page. So I expanded it. I, I added stuff. I added detail. I filled in the story and everything. And then the chapter was, say, four to five times longer than my lecture notes and so on with everything else. Mm-hmm. So, so the book ended up being the largest book I've ever written, and it could have been larger still. And and in some way, you know, it was a surprise to me, not entirely a pleasant one when I started. But it also you could do things in a book you can't do in a classroom. You could really get into details, and you could you 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 could you could challenge and extend and explore people in a way that it's hard to do in an hour and a half class. Mm-hmm. How many of the jokes survived from lecture hall to book? Um, I hope the good ones survive. I, I'll I've be been, the judge of that, Paul. I've, I've been teaching this for a while. And and sometimes, you know, sometimes you don't fully update your lectures. I forgot at one point I made my Ross Perot joke. And uh, it didn't you quite get the reaction. No I was one, no. Hey, well, go <laughs> so ahead. You mean the problem not, being that? Nobody, no one has heard of Ross Perot. Right. Um, right. I, 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 I have to do a reality check. So I had taught intro psych actually last evening. I have a class at the University of Toronto. And I was talking about social psychology. I have a very funny clip from The Simpsons to illustrate the spotlight effect. Mm-hmm. So I put that. And before I put it, I had a sudden I said, do people know The Simpsons? Does that click? And they mm-hmm. all nodded agreeably. Mm-hmm. But there was a time where I made a Mr. Spock joke in the course of emotions and people went, what? Yeah. And then and then he did the more the films and people got it again. But yeah, yeah. so you have to update. I taught uh when did I last teach? It was probably like six years ago or so, a seminar uh at Princeton on Buddhism, six or seven. And and I you could you could introduce the movie The Matrix without worrying, yeah. but I'm told that you can't you actually can't do that anymore. 
Yeah, they're with really. Them. Yeah, yeah. Be careful with the Matrix. Really, I, I, I actually that's one thing in editing. Um, a friend of mine told me I had like nine Matrix references, and so that's a bit weird. So I cut it down to four. Okay. Well, I mean, your average book reader would get it because your average yeah. book reader is older than, than this twenty-two. Is, this is true. So, um, it's it's in a way, is this like your state of psychology address? I mean, to some extent, it it is a well, a there are a couple of questions embedded in that. One is, uh, you know, it's your opportunity to kind of, in a certain, not get too judgmental perhaps, but talk about, you know, strong points and weak points uh, of the of the field. Uh, and But it's also a chance to kind of update it since you had a psych textbook, yeah. right? Which yeah. hasn't been as long ago as since I had one, but it's been a while. With all due respect, Paul, it's been a while. And it's been a while. I, you know, I tried to find my psych textbook, which, as I recall, was written by Hilgard Atkinson. And Atkinson was that ever a textbook? I think that was. I think that it was, was, but I couldn't find it, so I, I couldn't compare it. But you must have thought, like, how has the how has the field changed? What's new and good? Yeah. What was new that turned out not to be so good, and stuff like that, right? So I, I say this with some hesitation because it would really gladden my heart if college professors all over the world assign my book as their psych textbook. Um, so I do not want to discourage anybody from doing so. But it's exactly this way that it differs from a textbook. Ours is one of the ways it differs, where, where I do summarize the state of the art in psychology. I try to give it every effort to get everything right, to sort of say, this is what people believe about consciousness, about memory, about, about mental illness, and so on. But I also put in my own my own thoughts. I will say sometimes this field of research is overrated. It's it's people are just confused by basic things. I think Freud deserves more credit than most of my colleagues will give him. I think that um that clinical psychology is heading this way and not that way. Mm -hmm. I try to be sort of I'm gonna make it clear that this is me sort of speaking. So you could you could even if you disagree with me, you won't take home anything that that that's wrong. But unlike a textbook, I do take positions on this. This is this is my take on the field at large mm -hmm. what's an example of a take of yours that may not be unique but would differ from some takes in the field um i'm skeptical about neuroscience i'm not skeptical that um that the brain is the source of mental life i'm very very positive on that um mm -hmm. but i think people are just too easily caught up in uh fmri and erp and other neurological measures and they don't uh, fully appreciate how much insight about the mind has been generated by non-neurological methods, like just simple other other studies. And actually, that I'm actually, although I think there are some case studies I talk about where neuroscience has given us real insights about the mind, it doesn't happen as much as you might think it does. And in that way, some of my colleagues will push back. Like I said, um, although I have all sorts of negative things to say about about Freud, and some of my best jokes are in that chapter. Um, I think ultimately he got a lot of important things right, and I know I know psych professors don't mention Freud in their yeah. intro psych class. So so those are those are uh, uh, two examples uh, for language. I think I'm more nativist than many people. I think that more that I I sort of accept and brought out lines Noam Chomsky's claim that language is pre-wired in the human brain. It's mm -hmm. not a cultural innovation and and on and on and on. And so I'll tell the sort of party line, but then I will also be clear where I diverge from it. Mm -hmm. And and that that view on language that 
some of the linguistic equipment is is in our genes in some sense is part of uh, your broader sympathy toward evolutionary psychology, which isn't unqualified sympathy. But uh, how would you say that compares with kind of the the mainstream of the of the field? How accepting is your average person teaching yeah. an intro psych course? That's a good point. I, I think um, I think I'm more accepting, more influenced by evolutionary psychology than many psychologists. There are some who are more than I am in that they think it sort of pervades every aspect of the field mm -hmm. and everything gets turned into questions about adaptation and accident. And I actually think you do a lot of really good psychology without getting too caught up in, in the origins question. But I also think that for certain aspects of studying the mind, say talk about sexual desire or status mm -hmm. or morality, talking about it without seeing it from the perspective of evolution is, is foolish. It's mm -hmm. empty. You end up, you end up, and I know many, many of my, many psychologists will talk entirely about, say, human sexuality without a single nod to the sexuality of other primates, without a single nod to evolutionary pressures that might, say, cause men and women to diverge. Mm -hmm. And in fact, just as a plug for evolutionary psychology, I'm very honest about, I try to be honest about the weaknesses of our field, the replication crisis that many of our studies don't work. But certain claims that are motivated by evolutionary theory, such as uh, certain differences between men and women, have proven to be among our most robust findings mm -hmm. and really solid scientific data. And and um, so so in that way, I am more, probably more than most caught up in, in, in that field. You know, I also think an EBPSYC lens can help you with just kind of preliminary evaluation of plausibility. One thing you get into is the so-called replication crisis. Yeah where certain uh, findings that were that were taken as solid turned out not to be so replicable. As you point out, a number of these are in the field of uh, priming, where yeah. the claim is that there's something in your environment that an unconscious level changes the way you'll behave. And, and you know, like I've seen, you know, he, an example of a priming study that kind of made sense to me, and I'll bet would hold up, is when they give uh, men uh, questionnaires to fill out that include questions about their lifetime ambitions and where they imagine themselves being in 10 years, if there's the kind of woman they might find attractive, assuming these are heterosexual men, seated near them, they, they get more grandiose in their description of their ambitions and their likely uh, prospects. That makes sense to me. But I remember when I first heard about these studies where if you hand someone a cold beverage yeah. before they walk into a room, then they'll be cold to people and if or something. It's something along those lines. Yeah. And I thought, no, wait a second. It's true that the word cold, as it has come to be, has a couple of different uses, the temperature of a beverage and, you know, our attitude toward people. But like, why would natural selection design it so that if someone hands you a cold, you know, and that one, I just thought, yeah. And, and I yeah. and I really think EBSight can be part of kind of the smell test when you're when you're looking at at various kinds of hypotheses that people may want to explore or various kind of claims that that haven't been replicated. I think that's right. And and the fact that if you hold a warm beverage, you'll judge other people to be warmer people. Is it, was that the finding is, I was is, thinking of? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's one of the ones that didn't fare too well. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't it, think. I mean, to be fair to the priming people, what they often point out is saying it's not an accident that we use the same word for both. Um, for for temperature 
and for a certain personality type. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe the metaphor is embodied in our brain in some way. And so maybe getting one going gets the other one going. It's just, it's just, and if so, it wouldn't be an adaptation. It wouldn't involve just be kind of a quirk. Mm-hmm. But, but a, a lot of these things haven't, uh, haven't held up at mm-hmm. all. And I think in general, it's just not how the mind works. You are not, despite what some social psychologists would say, we're not constantly being pushed around by subtle factors beyond our control. Typically, because we wouldn't be able to, to do anything if we were like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I, we plan to talk, we set up a time, there we both are, and now we're talking about things in an intelligent way. That's not how a creature that's like a, a balloon in a windstorm bouncing around <laughs> I just made that up. Speak for yourself. I actually feel almost constantly like a balloon in a windstorm, but that, not everyone that's, does. That's your, I recognize that's your that. Zen, your, zen, your Zen background, that <laughs> you appreciate it. So there's too, enough metaphors in my book, and I should use that one. Yeah. So, the, yeah, evolutionary psychology can discipline you. So if you want to say, say, going back to, to, to sex differences, you want to say, look, here's a prediction that men in a certain, a certain situation become more aggressive, be more aggressive than women. You can kind of ground that. You can say other animals work like there's a logic to it. A lot of claims about sex differences, do women gossip more than men? Is that, they're just like, oh, maybe they're true, maybe they're false, but there's no logic to them. Why would yeah. you expect the sex is different that way? And I tend to think that the ones where there's sort of a rationale tend to be the ones that turn out to be robust and true. And the ones that you just kind of pluck out of the air don't. Yeah. And uh, there is an overly casual attribution of documented male-female differences to, you know, uh, genetic differences where yeah. cases where the theoretical argument isn't so clear and we really haven't, like, studied this on a cross-cultural basis and so on. That's right. And one of the things I like about evolutionary psychologists is they do... Well, you mentioned We mentioned the replication crisis, but there's a similar crisis, which is that we've been focusing far too much on a narrow population of people, Americans, Europeans, people from the educated West. Mm-hmm. And psychology needs to get more expensive. And evolutionary psychologists have led the way. So people have, they're, they're, if you look for, if you look at these studies that test right. people from a hundred different countries, from all the continents, all of that, there are often evolutionarily motivated predictions about about uh, sex differences, about age differences, personality differences, about universals of, of mm-hmm. desire, universals of reasoning, and they don't always find universals. Sometimes you find really interesting differences. But but that's I think some of the really good work. Yeah, um, and it it is kind of a common misunderstanding. It is easy to conflate evolutionary psychology and behavioral genetics. There are people who think yeah. that all evolutionary psychologists emphasize the genetic differences among people. Now, male female that is a difference between groups yeah. that is that is studied and 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 emphasized by evolutionary psychologists. But beyond that, they just differ. I mean, uh, my initial attraction to the field was because I believe there's such a thing as human nature. And yeah. I was interested in all the thing, the things that people everywhere have in common and, and so on. And, uh, and behavioral ge- genetics is initially a different, you don't even have to think about Darwin to do behavioral genetic studies. Now, as it happens, some evolutionary psychologists are interested in that? Do think the differences are extremely important? Some don't, but it's a different it's a different question. I think that's exactly right. Uh, in fact, the 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 leaders of the field of evolutionary psychology, uh, people like Lita Cosmides and John Tooby, <clears throat> are almost sort of militantly universalistic. We're interested in human nature. Differences between individuals are of very little interest, unless they're differences that have to do with with evolution, like 
sex differences, age differences. So you might expect somebody who's 80 to have a different set of priorities than someone who's 20 based on certain mm -hmm. evolutionary grounds. Putting that aside, though, they have no interest in, in whether some, the idea is just noise, whether some people are smarter than others or more introverted than others. And the behavioral geneticists who study differences tend to be rather divorced from this evolutionary psych program. Right. That's right. Um, so you mentioned Freud. Freud thought he was uh, he was the Darwinist or Darwinian yeah. or whatever. I mean, he, that's, he, he largely saw his project that way. He was a biologist of the mind and so on. As you said, you're you're somewhat charitable to him. It, I mean, first talk about your decision to early on frame uh, the the uh, use Freud and Skinner as kind of bookends or kind yeah. of as a way of defining uh, two ends of a certain spectrum kind of between which contemporary psychology can be found. Uh, I don't actually put it that way, but it's, I should have. It's a nice way of saying it. It's a, it's, it, you know, the simple narrative kind of, kind of fails. So it's interesting both Freud and Skinner drew upon Darwin for their theories. So, so, so Freud, um, Freud thought of himself as a biologist of the mind um, Skinner thought of his operant conditioning, reward and punishment, shaping somebody's behavior as exactly analogous to the process mm -hmm. of natural selection. He's very proud Darwinian. Jean Piaget had a totally different theory, also kind of adopted the mantle of adaptation and, and adapting to one's environment. Um, so Skinner, the bookend idea is nice because uh, Freud had an enormously uh, extravagant view of mental life. That the conscious conscious experience exists is important, but so much is unconscious. These forbidden desires, these unconscious dynamics, these complicated unconscious systems. In some ways, Skinner could be seen as the most extreme possible reaction to this. Whereas mm -hmm. Skinner said, "Look, I'm not going to throw out the Oedipal complex and a primal scene and and the superego and uh, it. I'm going to throw out." All of the conscious stuff too. So psychology shouldn't be about emotions or memory or decision making. It should just be about behavior. Mm -hmm. So you get the most extreme view of the mind, contrast most minimal view. And I think psychologists now live, live in between. We accept with almost no exceptions. We accept the idea that there's there's mental representations, there's computations, that there's all sorts of things that don't reduce in any simple way to behavior. And with very few exceptions, we reject Freud's more extravagant claims about unconscious dynamics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the uh, I mean, I can understand Skinner's reaction. It's funny, you said you're uh, more sympathetic to Freud than some. Yeah. I'm more sympathetic to Skinner than some. And uh, I mean, he was, uh, well, he was much more, he was still uh, a little in vogue when I was in college. I mean, you know, his day was passing, but, uh, you know, I took a rat running course. My, my, yeah. I fulfilled my lab require my science lab requirement, uh, by doing nice things and mean things to rats. Um, and, uh, you know, what I would say in his defense is that like, and you kind of put it this way, uh, uh Freud was just not very scientific. I mean, oh. his theories were not put to any meaningful test. He just said, I once had a client who did this, and it turns out not all that was yeah. even true, but yeah. that aside. Uh, and therefore, I, you know, I'm a, here's this green theory. You know, Skinner not only said we have to do uh, replicable tests, but he said 
look, the only thing that, strictly speaking, is data, is scientific data, yeah. is something that's publicly observable. And all yeah. you can observe is behavior. You can talk all you want about thoughts and feelings. And, and of course, if, if you can, you know, uh, see the physical correlates of the feelings via brain scans or whatever, that's, that's yeah. data of some kind. But his point was, I'm sticking to like what the rats actually do and what the people actually do. And ultimately, a theory of psychology should be able to, by talking about all the environmental inputs, maybe all the ones ever in the course of the organism's life, uh, be able to predict outputs and so I, I, I sympathize with the philosophically yeah. very much with the aspiration. It turns out it's kind of hard to make a lot of progress on human psychology if you don't talk about internal states, right? That's right. So first thing, I don't want to play the who's older game, but when I was a graduate student at MIT, I, I saw a talk by B.F. Skinner at Harvard. Whoa. My, my friends and I went down there. He was an old guy then. Um, and he just he was giving a talk and and I found it amazingly unconvincing. His argument was he did a lot of etymology showing that um, that these words like think and believe and 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 you know know have roots that go back to behaviors, have mm -hmm. etymological roots that go back to behaviors like grasping or touching. And it's a really bad argument for anything. But but there he was, B.F. Skinner. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, I think you're right about his, his 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 insistence on replicable science, on observables, uh, his his rejection of these sort of Freudian narratives, I think is all to the good. But there was a weird part of it, which is his radical called radical behaviors, in other words, his denial that there are internal states at all. So first, it's it's denying in some well, way. Did he the deny most... that though? I've heard conflicting reports. I have heard conflicting reports. Did, did he, too, if, he, if, if you said, uh, Mr. Skinner, is it, is it like something to be you? Do you have subjective experience? Would he say, I don't recall any? <laughs> There's some joke about two behaviors sleeping together at a conference. And then um, afterwards, one of them says, that <laughs> was, 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 it, was it good for me? <laughs> um, um, here we go. This is just save this for the, for the ending. Um, yeah. Uh, he, I think like a lot of people at the time, he oscillated between radical behaviors in which denied the existence of mental states. Just mm -hmm. they didn't do no such thing. And um, and what he could sometimes call methodological behaviors, and which is okay, fine, mental states exist, but we but they're they're we a good science doesn't talk about things which are invisible. Yeah. And that's actually what I'm protesting against, because this is not true. Yeah. You know, um uh astronomers, cosmologists talk about what's inside of a star. Uh, geneticists and biologists talk about about structures. People talked about genes before they ever saw one under a microscope. Yeah, they but positive. those are physical things. You, it, what's inside a star is physically observable. Yeah. So it's publicly observable. Two physicists can look at it and agree on what it is. There is a difference between interior the interior life of the mind, subjective experience, and the so-called interior of a star. Yeah, yeah, but. I'm not sure it's as much of a difference. So you, you take the work of this guy, Tolman, who was a contemporary of Skinner, and he mm -hmm. studied mental maps in the rat. And he did all sorts of these lovely, elegant experiments that said that the rat's behavior only makes sense if you posit that it has within it a map of the environment. It can't just mm -hmm. be a series of, if I go right, I get reinforced. If I get left, I go punished. I get punished. Because you mm -hmm. shift around the map and make jumps. The sort are only explainable Mm -hmm. If you sorry, you shift around the maze. It's only explainable if you have a map in the head, and certainly mm -hmm. you have a map in the head. I could ask you to to draw your house, and you could you could do it. Um, and 
So there you, you still have replicable science and experiments that could be proven wrong and everything, but you allow for this hidden interior representation. And only later did neuroscientists actually say that the representation is over here mm -hmm. and it's encoded with these cells in this way. Okay. And, 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 and back to Freud, like I'll grant you that the idea of unconscious influence is important. Yeah. Even he conceded that wasn't original. He credited Nietzsche, uh, among That's others, right. I guess, with uh, being a pioneer right. there. So uh, convince me, beyond that, I'm not sure how how impressed I get by uh, Freud. Uh, convince me that I should think highly of Freud. Um, so there is this insight, which even Freud, who's the least modest person in all of humanity, conceded that he was not the first to say that there was a dynamic unconscious. But he was the one who pushed it and made it an important part of psychology. Mm -hmm. And now, now it's just it's just common sense in our field. So he asked people, well, why do so many people vote for Trump? And nobody says, well, just ask them and they'll tell you. Yeah. Because we accept people might people's voting behavior or vote for Biden or whatever, people's voting behavior could be caused by forces that they're unaware of. Mm -hmm. And so too for everything. We, we accept that just asking, even if people are honest, won't get yeah. you there. Yeah. And I think we owe a lot of that to Freud. I think I would credit Freud with other things too. I, think, I do think he's a wonderful writer. I think he had these flashes of genius that, that were impressive. Um, I, I'm ambivalent about, about his focus on sex, where, um, where on the one hand, some of it was just bizarre. Um, he believed that, that my favorite example, he believed that the primal scene, which is when you either witness your parents having sex or fantasize about it, played an absolutely pivotal role in development. Right. So there's all this crazy stuff. But on the other hand, and, and I, I quote here an essayist whose, whose, whose name I forget, but he points out that in Freud's focus on, on the range of sex, including female sexuality, he opened up the world to thinking about people as sexual beings. And he opened up the world to more sympathy for people with unusual sexual desires. The line I use is, if everybody's a pervert, nobody's a pervert. Right. And Freud argued everyone's a pervert. Yeah. That's reassuring. I feel better already. <laughs> um, it's, it's another blurb. Yeah. This book made me feel good about being a pervert. <laughs> um, so uh, let's see. Uh, quickly, before we get more into the kind of the substance of the book, the kind of give, give people a sense of the scope, you started on a, on, a, on a very philosophical note by wrestling with consciousness, mentioning Descartes and so on. Was, was that, is that something you had found was effective with students in, in getting yeah. them, drawing them in? So traditionally, intro psych courses, because I, 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 I went to my friends who taught him just like I said, send me your slides, tell me how you teach it. I read a lot of textbooks. Traditionally, you just begin with the brain. Mm -hmm. But but beginning with the brain, and, and there's a logic to it. It's the foundation of thought and so on. But actually, it tends to be fairly boring. There's these neurotransmitters and these kind of cells, and this part of the brain does this, this part of the brain does that. What I try to do when I talked about the brain is capture the excitement of the core idea, which is that people intuitively believe, like Descartes did, that our minds are separate from the physical world, that we mm -hmm. are immaterial souls. I wrote, my first book was called Descartes' Baby, and it was all about this belief in dualism. Mm -hmm. And um, psychology has shown that to be wrong, that we are, we are physical things. And I kind of, when I teach this to students, yeah, some of them just write it down, like, okay. Yeah. I kind of like the students to say, that's horrible, that's shocking. 
if you're right, when my brain is destroyed, when my brain dies, I'm gone. There's no afterlife. Mm-hmm. If you're right, then all sorts of religious beliefs and beliefs about leaving your body and does that have to be wrong. And and I think that that these things kind of follow that there's a real tension between a psychologist's view of mental life and our common sense view. And it's big news. If it's true, it's big news. And mm-hmm. some people, you know, some people push back and say it's not true. We are immaterial souls that root separate from from brains. So I kind of start with that because Descartes was after the very biggest questions, and their questions would still resonate now. Okay. And, and and these same questions get resuscitated now in the world of AI we're now living in, where it doesn't take five minutes for any conversation to turn to, well, is it conscious? Right, right. No, I, I, I yeah, no, I, that's totally true. Um, and I'm a big, uh, I'm a big advocate of that. Uh, obsessively asking that question. The um, so what? Uh, there's a lot of. I want to give people a sense of the scope. I mean, I'll give you an example. I wouldn't have necessarily... I was wondering, you do a whole thing on language that's very yeah. good. I was trying to recall, did was that a standard part of a psych textbook when I was uh, when I was studying? I guess I guess it is. It must be. Uh, it is. It's, it's, psych is just so multidimensional. Um, but but uh, go ahead. You're gonna. It's, it's it's funny. I talk to people. The textbooks include everything. This is why nobody wants to write a textbook because mm-hmm. I don't want to write seventy pages on a theory of the emotions that nobody believes, but is of historical value. And I leave that out of this book. Um, but but you can choose what to include. Uh, and I, I know people. A friend of mine actually teaches doesn't teach language. He says, you know, candidly, despite the fact that I did my graduate work, and it's kind of boring. I don't want to lose the students on nouns and verbs and Broca's area. And I don't think it's boring at all. Mm-hmm. So I try to include things. But I'll tell you, I often get people on Twitter saying, well, I'm sure your book discusses this. And then I have to say, no, I don't yeah. discuss um, hypnosis. I have like two sentences on Carl Jung. I have, mm-hmm. you know, so the book is, is for me thick, but it would have to be four times the size to include everything. So, so there are, you, you're pointing this already, there are choices as to what to include. And those choices themselves, I think, reflect an ideology about the feel and what matters. Mm-hmm. I think now, Freud matters a lot more than Jung, for instance. Yeah, although I've wondered, you know, the idea of uh, universal archetypes. Yeah. I don't think he, he took that as just an expression of a universally inherited human nature, like grounded in the genes. But that would be the interesting version of it to that would me. Be. That would be. And I don't I, I don't know anything about it. But That would I, be. In some way, my excuse would be, well, I talk about Plato and Immanuel Kant and Jerry Fodor and other Noam Chomsky who make that mm-hmm. argument. So I don't need to bring in Young. But I've I've heard like whenever whenever somebody mentions something I don't do in my book, I kind of feel the sadness. Well, yeah, I, I could have I could have talked about Young. Yeah. I'm you know I'm interested in perversity. We've talked about that before perverse behavior. And somebody's saying, well, do you talk about young shadow self? So, wow, mm-hmm. I've heard of that, but maybe mm-hmm. that's very interesting. So now, if I have a second edition, I'll have a chapter on young. Now, you know who talked about young shadow self is uh, mm-hmm. one of these journalists who lured chat GPT into <laughs> that's becoming something dark it. and spooky. Yes. And I was wondering, uh, have you thought about Chat GPT in terms of the human equipment for language. I'm just still trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, I've heard the standard thing. It's a probabilistic thing. It predicts like what word is likely to occur next. 
that doesn't seem to account for everything it does. I, I'm just wondering, is your view that, look, what ChatGPT is doing in the way it learns stuff, I mean, there's also that question, the whole machine learning question, like, uh, you know, you just say, you, you associate text with a picture, say. You say, yeah. that's a chair, that's a chair, that's a chair. Uh, and I thought, and then it becomes good at, at, at telling you what a chair is, which thing is a chair. And I thought, you yeah. know, in a way, that is the way we do it with kids. We don't we don't give them a formal definition of a chair. We just keep yeah. pointing to things and saying that's a chair. So have you, you had any thoughts on this this mystery of chat GP, of AI? Yeah, I've, I've had a lot of thoughts on it. And I'll make I'll, I'll make a confession. Chat GPT largely works as best we know on deep learning, on statistics, just mm -hmm. a big statistical analysis on what comes after what, predictions just in a purely linguistic world. If you asked me five years ago, how far can you get with just that? I'd say not that far. Right. And that would be a mistaken prediction. I am yeah. struck by how impressive these machines are. And now the machine, ultimately you get one that tells you that you don't love your wife anymore and you should run away with it. And you know, you're, you're, and the, the real yeah. scary versions of it is shocking how impressive they are. He was shaken. He was that journalist was shaken by that. Makes me wonder. Yeah. But I don't want to go there. But, but I've, he, I've, <laughs> I've heard your discussion. Your discussion. A little close to home there. The yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, but, um, uh, and there's another. There's another version of 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 being which got very angry at a, at, at a, talking to a tech reporter and, and mm -hmm. threatened him and implied he murdered somebody. Yeah. But, so. However, just to answer you, I, I think that um, I kind of agree with Gary Marcus, who's made the case that um, these statistics will go just so far. Right. And at a certain point, you need another aspect of what the mind has, which is the ability to manipulate symbols and rules, to do logic, to do rational things. Mm -hmm. And there will always be these gaps, these critical gaps in a, a machine that doesn't have this sort of symbolic capacity. Yeah. Um, the uh, So one thing that's, become big since either of us had an undergraduate psych textbook is cognitive biases. Yeah. And you spend some time on that. Like what, what's your take overblown, underblown. Um, <laughs> Those are the I only mean, two choices. Sorry. Don't say yeah, anything uh, more nuanced. Um, overblown. If mm -hmm. I have to choose that. So, so I'll qualify this by saying Danny Kahneman, won the Nobel Prize for his work on cognitive biases and deserved it. His work co-authored Amos Tversky, who passed away before he got the prize, but he would have had it too. And there's these incredibly impressive discoveries that we are, we are, we fall back on simple heuristics when solving problems and making estimations, probabilistic estimations. One obvious one is the perception of risk. Um, and uh, so people tend to think that school shootings and uh, um, and street crime and so on are incredibly more frequent than they are because they're very salient. And we have a sort of bias that says, if something comes to mind easily, assume it's, it's frequent, which is perfectly good for an animal living in the, in the Pleistocene era. Very bad for somebody who spends all their time on Twitter mm -hmm. because you know the, the news cycle works that available is not necessarily the most frequent. So we, we tend to worry much more about, um, about plane crashes and long car rides. There's a million examples of this, including what you were alluding before, which sometimes called the my side bias, um, mm. or confirmation bias, which is which is ubiquitous and shows up all, all in in every aspect of life, which probably is what ubiquitous means, where where we tend to 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 construe things our way that favors our view, that favors our side. 
So fantastic work. I said overrated because many people think that rationality then has no place in everyday life. Um, Franz de Waal says something like, you know, we give rationality great weight, but when push comes to shove, we fall back on our emotions and our gut feelings. And John Haidt, my friend, said similar things. I think that's wrong. I think mm -hmm. we have this extraordinary power for rational reasoning. And, and I think actually that a lot of things like conspiracy theories and, and, and sort of fake newsy things that people say, look how stupid people are, are actually cases where these are actually fairly intelligent things for a social animal. So mm -hmm. just, I, I'm monologuing here, but, but you mean in the but, sense that conspiracies do happen and they may threaten you and, and it would make sense to be able to entertain hypotheses about them if you want to stay alive. In two senses. I mean, in some way, Dan, that's one of them, which is there are conspiracies. Mm -hmm. there, I've been involved in one or two. I've been a professor for a long time. I've been involved <laughs> in, in hiding information and doing something. This, uh, and so, so often conspiracies are, we often use the term conspiracies to refer to conspiracies that, that, that we don't like. And then the other conspiracies, like, uh, I don't know, the Iran-Contra affair. Well, those, we don't call them conspiracies because they're true. But if you mm -hmm. take conspiracies in its literal sense, they happen all the time. It's good to keep an eye out for them. But there's also a second sense where sometimes people hold views um, like uh, QAnon or, or whatever. That, that People say, that's really foolish. But what they forget is that in everyday life, your goal isn't necessarily truth. Sometimes your goal is to get along. Mm -hmm. and, and rationality whether something's rational or not has to be judged relative to what your goal is. If my goal is to be popular among my neighbors, I am being very rational to hold views that maybe are objectively silly. But if I held other views, if I, if I disagree with them on everything and I'm ostracized, am I smart? I think I'm stupid. If depending on, it's only smart if you don't value social contact. Yeah. So before we call people stupid for their views, ask, what are they trying to maximize? What's their goal here? And then when I think when we do that, we find that we're smarter than they look. Well, yeah, I mean, strictly speaking, natural selection didn't design us to either see the truth or speak it. Now, it designed us, I mean, in terms of the very bottom line, the very bottom line was getting genes into the next generation. As it happens, that's often best done if you see the world right. clearly, you know, if you see, although even there, like, you know, we, we, uh, you know, it makes sense to see an approaching object clearly if it may hurt you. On the other hand, we tend to overestimate their speed. Yeah. Uh, but And that's strictly speaking an error, but it's presumably because better safe than sorry. False positives right. can be useful. And uh, so, I mean, this is one reason I actually, I think I would put more weight on cognitive biases than you do. Although I'm, it, it isn't the, uh, the Kahneman, Traversky kind are not the kind that I think are, the, are often not the ones that are most important to get straightened out for the good of like the survival of our species. Um, the, the, um, but uh, but I, I, I do take cognitive biases uh, very seriously. And I think you're right. In, in fact, uh, you know, to get back to the kinds of biases they talked about, uh, Kahneman and Traversky, you know, Lita Cosmetas, Showed yeah. that some of the tasks, and you you talk about one of these, that people are bad at, uh, they're logical kind of tasks, like what's the best 
you know, they're inferential tasks. Uh, you know, it's like if you're trying, yeah, you know, we need you know, the what is it, the Wasson thing or the something? Waste, the waste and selection. The waste and, task. Anyway, yeah. Lita showed that if you if you reformulate the exact same logical task in in terms of a of a kind of concrete task that's more like what people face during evolution, like spotting cheaters. Yeah, they're suddenly yeah. very good at the logic. The context transforms their mind into into a rigorous logical machine, right? That's right. That's right. If you um and Gert Gigerenzer showed that you take things that we do badly, framed in terms of statistics, five percent, ninety five percent, and so on, and you turn them into raw data, into numbers, as if you're experiencing things, we do much better. Mm -hmm. And so part of what goes on is we are actually really adapted to thinking very well in a context which is different from the one we live now. It doesn't have statistical analyses and logical formula. I think the same thing shows up, and you've, you've talked about this a lot, regarding our everyday sort of emotions, where, you know, people say, somebody cuts me off and I lose my temper at them, and, uh, or somebody insults me on Twitter and I get furious. And you say, well, that's silly. Somebody says, that's silly. Who cares what a stranger thinks? Mm -hmm. And it is silly until you realize that these emotions have evolved from living in situations where there probably were no strangers. You had to deal with right. somebody on a day-to-day -day basis, right. under which case they become totally rational. Right. And not only were the people you were mad at not strangers, but you were probably, if you know, if you retaliated, uh, it was in the presence of your whole social unit. Like everyone right. who mattered to you was going to know whether somebody could walk up and take advantage of you or not. And it's it's you know it makes sense to incur some cost to incur physical suffering in the course of a fistfight say if if you establish the principle that whoever messes with you is also going to incur a cost that's right and when you and when you do this over like facebook or twitter you look like an idiot and people say well that's that's so foolish but but in in the world in which we're set up for it this is often entirely entirely sensible. I mean, sometimes people say like, who cares what other people think? You shouldn't care so much what other people think. Well, fine, if you're like a god, but but but, but we're mammals. It yeah. matters so much what other members of our group think of us. Yeah, but this is such a source of trouble for me. <laughs> I mean, and I think, I think for a lot, lot of people, like taking that part of human nature, concerned with what other people think, into this completely bizarre world of social media, yeah. For all these people you don't even know are passing judgment on you, it really takes some getting used to. It takes some adaptation. I mean, part of this goes to your to your program in like why Buddhism is true, which I always took as sort of you accept the facts of natural selection, and then you say, let's figure out how to rebel against it. Let's figure out mm -hmm. how to take our normal instincts, our normal way of seeing the world, and hack our minds so that they no longer work. We don't care so much about reputation. Yeah. We don't instantly look at everything and say, good for me or bad for me, but try mm -hmm. to see things as they are. Right. And it's an extremely ambitious program. I mean, I mean, some people fight against God. You fight against our biological inheritance. You fight against Darwin. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it isn't just that we go around saying, is it good for me or bad for me? It's like our whole emotional infrastructure, our feelings are proxies for that question. Uh, not, not is it good or bad for me now, but would this kind of thing have been good or bad right. for the prospects of my distant ancestors getting their genes in another generation in a very different environment? And and, uh, and that that points to why a lot of these feelings aren't good for us. It's a different environment. They're not, you know, so they're not even yep. good for us in the Darwinian sense of genetic proliferation. 
let alone happiness, which natural selection never cared about anyway. That reminds me. Uh, now, you may have heard this, uh, my alarm go off. And that's because, uh, as I warned you, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, introduce something new here. Uh, I, I mean, uh, we're, uh, how should I say this? Well, all of us in the podcast business are constantly asking ourselves the same question. How do I keep this enterprise going? Uh, which involves, usually involves some uh, getting some revenue. Because for one thing, even if you're happy to uh, maintain your own amateur status, there usually have to be other people involved. Um, all the cool kids seem to be doing this thing, but the cool podcasters, where you can listen to some portion of the podcast. It's public. But then at some point, uh, they cut it off and the rest of the conversation is available only to paid subscribers. And uh, Paul Bloom, you've been blessed with yeah. the honor of being present uh, on the podcast where I'm actually going to do that. And uh, we're I, I, not right away. I want to ask you one more question uh, before we before we go into overtime. You, you should ask me a question that's incredibly provocative, and 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 and, and, and then that would be the cutoff point. I, I think I may do that. Put, put in some put in some coins to hear my response. I've actually got a good one. I've actually got a good one. But but after but but okay. but, but before I share that, uh, the um, uh, so that's the idea. You know, uh, this is a non-zero podcast. If you are a paid subscriber to the non-zero newsletter at Substack, that means you can you'll get you can sign up for this you know special podcast feed, which will include the full conversation. Um, and uh, but if not, uh, we still love you, and you can still be a, an unpaid subscriber to the non-zero newsletter, which gets you, of course, issues of the newsletter. Uh, and um, so that's what I'm going to try. Now, you're a psychologist. Do you have any marketing advice, like how I should, like, I probably haven't been talking about this very well, right? Like, I'm not good at promotion. Should yeah, I? You're, should you're I? talking to the wrong guy. You're not good I, either? I say at the beginning of my book or at some point, actually when I talk about clinical psychology, I'm, people often take my feel and think that we're shrinks, that we're clinicians. And, mm -hmm. and a friend of mine has this great line, I'm a psychologist, but I'm not the sort that helps people. And um, and now I'm saying this to you. I don't. I could get. You know, let's talk the theory of the mind and everything. But but how to how to sell something? Uh, no, no, you're not right. the guy. You do have a chapter on psychopathologies. I do. I do. Maybe we'll talk about that in overtime. In fact, yeah, I'd like to complain that you didn't uh, you didn't spend much time on the psychopathology that I've been accused of having. Uh, sadly, I think accurately, which is. Now, if I were a real uh, marketing jerk, I'd say, we'll find out folks, yeah, like, what that psychopathology is after the break. No, it's uh, some commenter accused me of having narcissistic personality disorder. And I'm afraid there's more truth to that than than I would like to admit. But we, we can get into that later. Um, the uh, So you get into that. I, before we do go into overtime, I want to give people a sense for the scope of the book. You get You get into psychopathology. You get into the question of what makes a good life. What yeah. is conducive to happiness? Is happiness the same as a good life? Uh, and some of this stuff we'll we'll get into more deeply in overtime. Um, what else? You get into uh, one new thing that's happened since our our undergraduate days is this implicit attitude yeah. thing where they 
it's a very clever way of trying to study whether somebody has uh, a bias, racial or otherwise, or uh, without them being able to game the test. It's not yeah. like, you know, do you, are, are black people good or bad? You know, it's not like you answer questions obviously related to the issue. Um, so you get into that. Uh, you know, what else um, would you say, just to give people a sense for the full scope of the book, are there uh, things we, we haven't talked about that you want to just touch on briefly? We, I think we, we've, we've, covered most of it i say a few topics we we didn't we didn't get into one is what you focus on which is are we all racist at some mm -hmm. level and and i try to do a deep dive into that another one is a memory where i argue that there's a common sense idea of memory as if we're holding up our iphones and doing a perfect recording and you could access that later whenever you want maybe you need help like a hypnotist or a therapist but it's all in there and that's totally uh false Mm -hmm. that there's now abundant evidence that memory is sort of a reconstructive storytelling experience. And there's wonderful and disturbing studies that I can implant false memories in people. And a final thing is something that you alluded to early on. You mentioned uh, behavioral genetics, and I talk about what we know about why people are different, why some people are smarter than others, more extroverted, more religious, uh, more kind. Why are there human differences at all? And this is separate from what we're talking about, the evolved differences between like men and women are, uh, but but it's it talks about the role of genes and the role of parents and the role of chance events. I think that work is really exciting. Okay, so we will, uh, a certain amount of this, we will explore in overtime. I've got time. I got time. Uh, and you have got a, a, a new book. It's called Psych. Um, and it's only been out, I think this, I think we're going to try to post this today, which means it'll have only been out a week, I think. Ooh, that's great. Thank you. And, uh, and of course this will impart massive momentum. This is, this is just what it needs. This is just this what is it's just... been waiting for. And, uh, and so I encourage everybody to run out and buy it. And if they want to hear the rest of this conversation, I encourage them to go to the, uh, non-zero Substack place and, uh, I'm a paid subscriber uh, or an unpaid subscriber, although I'm afraid uh, that won't get you the rest of the conversation. Now, that's that's a, that's bad marketing. I'm going too far. I'm dwelling too much, right, on the on this whole. <laughs> yeah. You just stop me. Stop me, Paul. Don't yeah. just tell me to shut up. <laughs> you got to you got to kind of tease it out a little bit. Just... <laughs> I'm bad at this. I'm bad yeah. at this. It, 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 I find it this there's sort of a disarmingly disarmingly honest aspect of this, where the sort of plaintive plea for subscribers. You is think you say it's, it's effective in a, in a perverse way? That's exactly right. Okay, well, that's what I've always aspired to be effective in a perverse way. So, um, thank you, Paul. Great book. Everybody should buy it. Uh, let's pause and then resume the conversation. Thank you, Bob. I enjoyed our free conversation. <laughs>